Thank you. Good morning. So good to see you today. Uh, so wonderful to have you with us this Lord's Day morning. I invite you to uh, take your Bible or a copy of God's Word and open it up to the book of Ruth, which is the eighth book of the Old Testament. The uh, book of Ruth and Ruth chapter 2. I encourage you to have it in front of you in some form or other so you can follow along in our passage today. It's 23 verses, and Lord willing, I think we'll be able to cover that entire stretch. The reason it's so large is because this is a, a historical book. The, the, the thought is, it just interrupts the flow, anything less than this chapter. So can't break it up uh, smaller than that. So we'll look at all 23 verses of Ruth chapter 2. We'll be reading the whole chapter throughout the course of the sermon, but to begin with today, I'm just going to read the first 10 verses to get us started. So in your Bible, follow along with me, and let's uh, uh, read Ruth chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Naomi had a relative, her husband's a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young men, Who was in charge of the reapers? Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? Well, this is God's inerrant word. It's authoritative in our lives. It speaks, it commands us what to do. And we want to submit ourselves to it this morning as we study the contents of this chapter. So let me pray briefly now and ask the Lord to guide and direct us in our study. Indeed, Father, we pray you'd open our eyes that we might see uh, Christ Jesus, that you would be present and that you would speak to us through your word today. Uh, strengthen us to hear your word. Quicken us with your grace. We pray, Savior, in your precious name. Amen. Well, we've been in Ruth uh, two weeks now, and it's time for a pop quiz. If you pull out a sheet of paper and write your name in the upper right-hand corner. Uh, not really, but um, I do want to ask you something, and, and please don't answer out loud. Please do not answer out loud. In your mind, who's the main character in the book of Ruth? Well, and I can hear you say, uh, Pastor Rob, this is obvious even for you. <laughs> Surely it's Ruth, right? The woman the book is named after. Um, the woman who eventually we'll see at the end becomes the great-grandmother of King David. Certainly she, she is one of the central figures. You're correct uh, in, in this book, but, but no. Uh, that's incorrect. Ruth is not the main character of Ruth. Well, then how about Naomi? Up to this point, after all, the storyline has essentially revolved around her. 
Chapter 1 is essentially an account of what's happened to Naomi. And, and then again at the end, we see Naomi holding her new, new um, great-grandson as if, as if to show us, or her grandson rather, as if to show us that the Lord has brought her full circle. Well, that's a good guess, but that too is incorrect. Naomi is not the main character in the book of Ruth. One of them, certainly. Well, how about uh, Boaz, who's introduced to us today for the first time in chapter 2. And, and after all, Boaz cuts a dashing figure in the rest of this book. Chapters uh, 2, 3, and 4 show uh, Boaz very gallant actions. And Boaz points beyond himself to, to a greater Boaz in the future. So he has to be the central character of Ruth, right? Well, the correct answer is D, none of the above. <laughs> the main character of Ruth is, is perhaps not so obvious to the casual reader. Uh, Pastor David Strain observes that the main character of Ruth doesn't even have a speaking part. The main character doesn't have a single line of dialogue in the whole story. You figured it out, I'm sure, haven't you? It's the main character of the book of Ruth is God himself. Now, how do we know that God is the central character in the book of Ruth? How do we know that this book is ultimately all about him? Well, because here in chapter 2, we clearly can see the invisible hand of God at work, orchestrating everything in the lives of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. And this morning, our task is to trace his invisible hand through this chapter. And the reason we want to be able to trace the Lord's hand in this, the life of Ruth, is so that you can also learn to trace the invisible hand of God in your own life. And see how he is working even today. There are three clues in chapter 2 that reveal his invisible hand to us. Three clues in our passage indicating that he is the central character. And that this is really all about him. The first clue we discover uh, is... Uh, is the mysterious providence of God. First, we see the hand of God working invisibly and mysteriously in the lives of Ruth and Boaz. And I want to mention three things to you about his mysterious providence. Now, the first thing I want to point out about his mysterious providence is an arrangement. Uh, God's arrangement of people and events, that he is at work behind the scenes, setting people and events in places and, and setting them in motion. Again, look with me at verse 1 in your Bible. It says, now Naomi had a relative of her, of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Here, the narrator is speaking, and he, he reveals what God has been doing behind the scenes. He informs us about something that Ruth is completely unaware of. He's let us in on a behind-the-scenes view of things. And specifically, the narrator tells us there's a man in Bethlehem named, named Boaz who is a near relative of Naomi's late husband, Elimelech. Remember, he died all the way back at the very beginning of chapter 1. But now the narrator is letting in, there's a close relative right there. Now why is that so important? It's, it's important because later in this chapter, Naomi refers to Boaz as a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. Uh, in the Old Testament, it was a brother's responsibility if... If his brother died, uh, he was called to marry his brother's childless widow and, and raise up an heir for his brother. That's described in Deuteronomy 25. Uh, the, the son from that marriage would 
preserve his late father's name. And, uh, and his uncle was, was fathering him so that the family property would pass on to him. Well, of course, a brother isn't available here, but this is a close relative. So what we have in verse 1, the narrator with a kind of a knowing wink of the eye tells us that God has been arranging things and already has someone in place who can marry Ruth and serve as a redeemer for, uh, for Naomi. Well, it says too about Boaz, says he's a worthy man. Uh, that's an important note. Worthy indicates that, that this guy is more than just a warm body. He's more than just a, some guy. He's a, he's a man of character and influence. He's a man of integrity. He's a, he's a godly man. And glance down to verse 4, and I'll point this out to you. It says in verse 4, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Um, that might not strike you as really all that important. Uh, of a conversation, but those words between Boaz and his farmhands are very important. Remember that this whole story takes place in Israel during the time of the judges, uh, the Wild West, so to speak, of the Old Testament, uh, a time when there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's described like this by one writer, uh, an era of frightful social and religious chaos violent invasions, apostate religion, unchecked lawlessness, and tribal civil war. And the first words you hear out of Boaz's mouth uh, and, and the farmhands reply, it's the covenant name of God. The Lord be with you, he says, and the Lord bless you. One man observes that, that that's very similar to Aaron's blessing in Numbers 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And this same writer says that these greetings show us that something spiritually is going on not only in these people, but perhaps in the whole nation. Uh, maybe a period of revival. When you've got even the farmhands blessing their master with the covenant name of God, something is going on. When both employer and employees recognize God's presence on the job and that he's the one who blesses their work, something significant is happening. He's... So Boaz is not only a, a near kinsman who can redeem Naomi and Ruth. He's also a man of character. This is the man that God has put in place, who he has arranged uh, to be the kinsman redeemer for Naomi and Ruth. So this is the first thing we see in the mysterious providence of God. But there's something important that follows directly on the heels of that. The next thing we see here is action. And that's the action of Ruth. Uh, Ruth doesn't know anything about Boaz. Ruth sets out, therefore, to find food for her and Naomi. Look at verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. What is, what is Ruth asking permission to do? What does she mean uh, to go out and glean? Well, the word simply means to gather, collect, as in collecting the crop at harvest time. But Ruth is referring to a provision that God's law made for widows and the poor in Israel. And uh, after uh, the reapers or the harvesters gathered the crop. Remember, they pick it by hand. Um, the poor in Israel were allowed to follow after them and pick up what was left in the field. Also, they were told not to, not to harvest the very edges of the field. That was specifically left for the widows and for the poor. 
Here's what Leviticus says about this. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings, in other words, what you've dropped on the ground, after you harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy says something very similar. Uh, it, but it adds that if you've dropped something, you, you can't go back and pick it up. That's to be left where it fell for the poor and for the widows. This is what Ruth is talking about, that, that the widows and the poor were allowed to follow behind and and pick up and gather food for themselves. The thing I want you to see, and it's really important to see, is Ruth is not sitting around on her hands saying, oh, I wonder what the will of God is. I wonder when he will reveal it to me so I know what to do. That's not necessary. She acts according to the will of God and simply goes. In a very vulnerable place as, as a widow, she simply sets out to do what the Word of God allows her to do. She's going to go find a field outside the city where reapers are gathering the barley harvest. And she's going to walk behind them and pick up what, they, what they've dropped or left behind. She's taking action here. She's not waiting for the invisible hand of God to become visible. She doesn't sit around with Naomi wringing her hands and saying, I wonder what God's will for my life is. She knows this much that she can go and gather food and, and she simply does what seems appropriate for her to do. It's really important for you and me. Because most of the time, we don't know what God's invisible will is, do we? His providence. We don't. We're not promised that he'll reveal it to us. But we don't need to know. Everything that's necessary for you to know, he's already shown you. He's already told you. This is what we see Ruth doing. She's simply acting on what the law of Moses allowed her to do. And, and, and you and I can do... Something similar. We have more of the Bible now than Ruth did, of course. Friend, you don't have to sit on your hands wonder what the specific will of God, what His providence intends for you. You, you, you might not ever know. But according to the Word of God, acting according to the Word of God, we simply go and act. Of course, we want to ask more mature believers, more mature and godly people, just like Ruth does. We're not required to know everything in his sovereign plan for our lives to go out and act. We simply do the next thing. Do the next thing. Someone saw that phrase engraved uh, in the archway of an old church in England. And so they, they wrote this poem about it, entitled, cleverly enough, Do the Next Thing. From an old English parsonage down by the sea, there came in the twilight a message to me. In quaint Saxon legend, deeply engraven, hath it seems to me teaching from heaven. And on through the doors, the quiet words ring like a low inspiration, do the next thing. Many a questioning, many a fear, many a doubt hath its quieting here. Moment by moment, let down from heaven, time, opportunity, and guidance are given. Fear not tomorrow's child of the king. Trust them with Jesus. Do the next thing. Do it immediately. Do it with prayer. Do it reliantly, casting all care. Do it with reverence, tracing his hand who placed it before thee with earnest command. Stayed on omnipotence 
save neath his wing, leave all results, do the next thing. Looking for Jesus ever serener, working or suffering, be thy demeanor. In his dear presence, the rest of his calm, the light of his countenance, be thy psalm. Strong in his faithfulness, praise and sing. Then as he beckons thee, do the next thing. I encourage you to take action like Ruth did. Again, make sure your actions do not contradict the word of God. Again, seek advice from, a, from someone uh, more mature in the faith like Ruth, Ruth did. And then act on it. It seems, it seems contrary. It might even sound unspiritual. But we do not have to wait for the mysterious workings of God to unfold before us before we take the next step. In, in keeping with His Word, we simply do the next thing. I want to show you a third thing in His mysterious providence. And, and the third thing to see is alignment in God's perfect timing, he will align people and events in keeping with his providence. Look at verse 3 with me. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And so we have to read verse 3 with kind of a seeing the twinkle in the narrator's eye. Uh, it literally says here, uh, uh, the Hebrew emphasizes this, the apparent coincidence of, of Ruth happened upon Boaz's field. Uh, it literally says, as chance chanced, or the chance that chanced upon her was, and sometimes you and I might say, as luck would have it, Ruth came across the very field that belonged to Boaz. Uh, and, and, and it's, I don't know, I, I see, I see a, a tad bit of humor here. Certainly that twinkle in the narrator's eye of letting us in on how he has directed her to the very place that Boaz owns. And, and, and don't miss the very last phrase of that, uh, he says, who was of the clan of Elimelech? Uh, the narrator says, oh, oh uh, did I mention that Boaz was a relative of Naomi's late husband? Did I mention that yet? Yes, you did. But he mentions it again. But that's not all. Look at verse 4 now. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Behold is, is a glorious two-letter Hebrew particle. It's emphatic, and it's drawing our attention to this word as if to say, well, what do you know? <laughs> what do you know? Uh, or, or maybe, now, you're not going to believe this, but Boaz just happened to walk up right then. Or, or, look who came strolling up. None other than Boaz. Again, the twinkle in his eye, the slight grin on his face. Can you see the sheer goodness of God unfolding before your very eyes? It's, it's great, great writing. That God, when the time is right aligns events in keeping with his infinite wisdom. Uh, this alignment is the third thing to note about the mysterious providence of God. So we see his arrangement of people and events, and we've seen Ruth's action, not having to wait for it to unfold. And, and we see God's alignment, bringing people together. And this is the first way we detect the invisible hand of God at work. And the first clue is through his mysterious providence. Well, we see God at work further. Uh, the second clue that we see is the extravagant provision of God. Uh, 
God provides abundantly for Ruth and Naomi through the generosity of Boaz. And I want to show you five things about this provision of the Lord. Uh, the first thing that I want to point out is the identification where, where um, uh, Ruth is pointed out by the foreman and identified by him. Uh, verse 5, Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? He, I mean, he knows his farmhands well enough to recognize a stranger among them and asks who she belongs to. And the foreman, foreman identifies her in verse 6. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. It's, it's again a little bit of humor here. Note, note the stress she's placing on where she's from. She's a Moabite. And she's from Moab, Moses. This is, this is Naomi's non-kosher daughter-in-law. And did I mention that she's not from around these parts? Uh, then on the bright side, he, he gives an unsolicited opinion of her work ethic. In verse 7, she, she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. That's the thing we've described of the poor and the widows collecting what's fallen on the ground. Uh, sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Uh, Boaz is not the only person of character in this chapter. We, we, we already grew to like Ruth from last week in chapter one because she had sacrificed her future for Naomi and, and she had laid down her life for Naomi's God. And we see, see here she is a a diligent, hard-working young woman. And so, so Boaz, uh, so Ruth is identified um, to Boaz. This is the identification. And, and then next, though, we see the invitation. Boaz invites Ruth to remain in his field and, and, and glean even more in verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one. But keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? Here we see what a worthy man Boaz is and, and what godly character he has as he so graciously and generously invites Ruth to stay close to those harvesting his crop. One scholar points out that the tendency for, for those gleaning was to, was to get a little too close to the reapers and their anxious concern to gather food. They pressed it a little bit, were right up on their heels and might have even overreached and, and pulled things that aren't, weren't necessarily harvested or dropped on the ground yet. And when that happened, the young men would, would uh, as, as this kind of alludes to, uh, they would they would drive them off. They would humiliate them for what they were trying to do. But here, Boaz extends to Ruth, keep close to my young women. Look, don't worry about that. My men aren't going to say anything to you. Don't, don't need to keep your distance. Help yourself, my daughter. My, my farm hands aren't going to bother you. And then he goes further at the end of verse 9. And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. That's hot and thirsty work. It's like working in, in Georgia in August, mowing your lawn. And the only solution we have is to shut off the mower and go inside and get a glass of water. And so... so you know, for Ruth to go and draw her own water, that's time wasted. And, and, and Boaz says, look, you don't need to do that. Drink the water my men have drawn, and you won't lose time. Take what they've drawn. Well, this is, this is not lost on Ruth, his generosity. It's not lost on her. And she recognizes this for what it is. It's, it's undeserved kindness. Look at verse 10. She fell on her face. 
bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes? That you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Why are you doing this? I don't deserve this. She, she normally would have been shunned because she was from Moab. I'm as non-kosher as it goes, but you've treated me so graciously. And look at how he replies, verse 11. But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. It's not merely that Ruth has made a tremendous sacrifice to remain with Naomi and care for her, leaving behind her own home. Boaz sees that there's a spiritual dimension to this whole thing. She's entrusted herself to the care and provision of the covenant-keeping God of Israel, Yahweh. That's what he's referring to. Notice how the word Lord is spelled uh, in verse 12. May Yahweh reward you. You've sought refuge in the Lord. Ruth, you've been incredibly kind to Naomi, but it's not just that. Now you worship Yahweh, the one true God. You are a true Jew now. You're my sister in the Lord, he might say. We're kindred spirits, if not actually kindred because we worship the God of Israel. And she replies in verse 13, she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. You don't owe me anything, but you've comforted me. These are probably the first kind, it's probably the first kind thing that anyone has said to Ruth since her husband died. What a generous and gracious and godly man he is turning out to be. And these shine through the invitation he extends to Ruth. It goes further. The third thing we see here is inclusion. Ruth is included in, in, in the company of Boaz. And look at verse 14, and at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers. She's not uh, left on the fringe. She's not standing in the shadows. She's not sitting on the sidelines. Boaz invites her to come forward, this non-kosher widow, and sit right beside his other young women at, at, at lunch. And that's a great privilege. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 14 goes on to say, and he passed to her roasted grain. So this, this might be something like sitting around a campfire and, and roasting hot dogs over the open fire, something with that feel to it, very casual and, and, and familiar. And Boaz hands, her, Boaz hands her a stalk of roasted grain. And the notable thing we have to recognize is, is this is a sign of his special favor to Ruth. And, and, and apparently... He handed her a, a substantial amount because verse 14 ends and she ate until she was satisfied. And she had some left over. It's almost like a, the Old Testament version of Matthew 14 and the feeding of the 5,000. 
And think about what Naomi said. I, I, I went away full and I came back empty. But here's Ruth. She, she went away from Moab empty. And now she's full. Because she's been included in Boaz's company. It really just keeps getting better and better for Ruth. The next thing we see is instruction. Boaz uh, gives instruction to his farmhands about Ruth, and we see this in verse 15. When, when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. Not only can Ruth remain close to the young women harvesting the crop, now Boaz gives her permission to glean from what his young women haven't even gotten yet. Let her glean among the sheaves, the standing grain. And not only that, let her glean from the piles we've already harvested. Or to say it like this, you're to give this young non-kosher widow anything she wants. He supplies her even further. And look at the end. Lastly, we see the increase the supply of food she has by the end of the day in verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening, then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. That would mean something if you knew what an ephah was. <laughs> about five and a half gallons of grain. About a two-week supply it would have weighed between 29 and 50 pounds. It's like carrying a very large bag of dog food. <laughs> she has, she and Naomi now have a, have a significant increase in their food supply from Boaz's extravagant generosity. What's the significance of these five things for you and me? What's the importance? Just this. As the character of Boaz continues to develop in our story, we will come to see that Boaz is a picture of Christ. Boaz points to a greater Boaz, if you will. And the way we saw Christ provide for the 5,000 in Matthew 14 with 12 baskets of leftovers portrays the way that Christ graciously, generously, and extravagantly supplies us with everything we need. Only it's not grain. It's grace. Consider these passages from God's Word. First, Paul says in Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. This does not say that God will give us the grace for every possible scenario that you and I dream up. I mean, after all, we imagine some of the wildest, worst-case scenarios, don't we? We're not promised for that. For every scenario, our imagine, imagination brews up. But He has promised to provide for every actual need that you and I will encounter. And not just that. He has extravagantly promised to supply grace above and excuse me and beyond that need. His word says in 2 Corinthians, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, 
so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. The context of that verse is important. It's given in the context of, uh, of an offering. And Paul is telling the Corinthian church that God will provide beyond what they need so that they can help the church in Jerusalem with their financial gift. But it clearly goes beyond that context because look what it says. In all things, at all times, in, in every situation we encounter God's promise to supply abundant and even in extravagant grace. Listen to uh, Pastor David Strain as he describes this. It is not that not just that there's grace to fill your deepest spiritual need under the wings of the Almighty. It is not just that Jesus is an adequate Savior for every sinner who seeks Him. No. It is that there is more grace than you can manage. More grace than you can exhaust. More grace in Christ. An extravagance of grace in Him for you. There is super abounding provision for you in the mercy of God and grace in Jesus Christ. Boy, wouldn't you love to be able to question Ruth? Say, Ruth, do you, do you, did Paul get it right? Is that true? And picture Ruth, you know, yes, I think it's true. <laughs> lugging her grain back home to Naomi. The Amazon River is the largest river in the world. The mouth is 90 miles across, it said. There's enough water to exceed the combined flow of the Yangtze in China, the Mississippi in the States and the Nile River in Egypt. So much water comes from the Amazon that they can detect its currents 200 miles out in the Atlantic Ocean. And one strange thing of ancient navigation is that sailors in ancient times died for lack of water caught in the windless waters of the South Atlantic. They were adrift, helpless, dying of thirst. Sometimes other ships from South America who knew that area would come alongside and call out, what's wrong? What's your problem? And they would exclaim, can you spare us some water? We're dying of thirst. And from the other ship would come the cry, just lower your buckets. You're in the mouth of the mighty Amazon River. Wow. So... You might be really identifying with Naomi at this point in our, the book of Ruth and trying to deal with loss or tragedy. I don't know. So what would God say to you from chapter 2 today? He would say, friend, lower your bucket and I will fill it with grace. And when it runs out, I'll fill it again. And I'll fill it again. And I'll fill it again. And I'll fill it again. I'll fill it again after that. And then again. Because His grace is inexhaustible. It's extravagant for the need that you have today. We see the invisible hand of God through his extravagant provision through Boaz. It's providing more than enough for Ruth and Naomi through Boaz's generosity. There's, there's one more clue I want to show you in our chapter, and that's the furious pursuit of God. God faithfully pursues Naomi with his steadfast love. Let me mention three things here about his furious pursuit. The first thing that we read is, is a report from Ruth. 
she recounts her day to, to Naomi. Look at verse 18. And she took it up, that is her barley, her giant bag of dog food, staggered home. She took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law, slapping her head, said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. She reports what's gone on simply, but I want you to notice in particular this response from Naomi. Verse 20 continues, And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. It's, it's our turn now to ask the question from, we heard in chapter 1, is this Naomi? Is this the same woman we read about last week? Is this the woman who we read of last week shaking her fist at God? Look at what's happened. It's dawning on her that her tragedy, the death of a husband and two sons, that tragedy was not God's final word for her. Naomi breaks out in praise. <laughs> and, and that's why we ask if it's really the same person. Did aliens come and switch her, you know, not just for the generosity of Boaz, but she praises the Lord for his steadfast love. Look at what her words are there in, in the verse. In verse, uh, in verse 20, may he be blessed by the Lord. That's referring to Boaz. But she continues, whose kindness, meaning the Lord's kindness, has not forsaken the living or the, or the dead. And, and the word kindness, look at that, notice it in your Bible. You, you might have another version, uh, word, loving kindness, uh, faithful love, depending on what version you have. The, uh, it's translated kindness by the ESV. It, it is perhaps the most important word in the Old Testament. This is the term for the steadfast, covenant-keeping faithful love of God. It, it refers to God who keeps his covenant with his people, the God who's faithful to his covenant, the God who unfailingly demonstrates love to his people. And Naomi says, God hasn't forsaken me after all. He's kept his covenant with us, and he's not abandoned us. She's not done because the goodness of, of God is, is just beginning to dawn on her. In the next phrase of verse 20, she said, Naomi said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And now... Naomi tells Ruth what you and I have known the whole time. Boaz is a, is a close relative who can purchase their property and marry Ruth. He's a kinsman. He's a redeemer. And, and Naomi, you see the light in her eyes as she recognizes God's been at work the whole time. <clears throat> God has been pursuing her the whole time. He's been at work in her life to reveal how great he is and how good he is and how satisfying he is. And he's been furiously pursuing her throughout the last decade. And the thing that we need to hear 
It's that the Lord is pursuing you in exactly the same way in your tragedy. Even in the worst of times, one thing God is doing, and I say it without hesitation, and I say it with the authority of the Word of God, He is furiously pursuing you with His steadfast love. Now how, how can we know this? Oh, it sounds really great. A God who is pursuing you with His faithful covenant-keeping love. How do we know that's true? Listen to these words, and you know them, and you've known them a long time. Uh, after David describes God's wonderful care as a faithful shepherd, and, and then as he describes his, his provision as a gracious host, he concludes Psalm 23 uh, with this verse, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Two words that I've underlined there that, that I want to point out and draw your attention to. One is the word mercy. It's the word the ESV normally translates as steadfast love. It's the same word in verse 20, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. It's that important Old Testament word for God's covenant-keeping love, His steadfast love, His faithful love. It's unfortunate that, that we know it is mercy. That's how the King James put it, and that's why the ESV says mercy here. But the word is hesed, and it surely could be translated steadfast love, just like all the other times in the Old Testament. And then look at the word follow that's underlined. The follow is absolutely as bland as you can get when, when it comes to translation. The, the, the word more literally means to chase, to pursue, to hunt down. It, it can communicate something bad, like when your enemies are hunting you down. But here this word communicates the most incredible thing you can imagine, the thing chasing us and hunting us down all through life is the faithful covenant-keeping love of God. Throughout your life as a follower of Christ, God is chasing you, hunting you down to do you good. It's an awesome thing, isn't it? In the worst tragedy that Jeremiah could dream of, it wasn't a dream, it was real. The tragedy was the city of Jerusalem was laying at his feet a smoldering ruin. And in the midst of that, this is what he says. He says, but this I call to mind. Therefore, I have hope. Steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. There is no worry that you will get just a little bit, little bit beyond the extent of His steadfast love. Oh, I've, oh, you're too far now. If you, if you hadn't gone that far, I, I, my love would extend to you, but you've gone out of the way and my love won't. This can't happen. <coughs> Cannot happen. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It's redundant. The unfailing love of the Lord never fails. It's like saying a, a Moabite from Moab. The, the, the unceasing love of the Lord never ceases. What a glorious redundancy for you and me. Do you see that? His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And 
This is what dawns on Naomi. What begins to sink into her mind. God has not left me. His kindness continues to the living and the dead. Has it begun to dawn on you that the furious love of God is chasing you down, running after you? Let's not use the word follow. It's, it's just too bland. It doesn't just do a good job. He is chasing you with his steadfast love. There is one more thing I want to point out here as we conclude. Uh, The third thing I want to show you is simply what remains, the remainder of what needs to be taken care of. Look at verse 21. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close to my young women until they've finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter. And so what... Note, note the phrase, it is good, my daughter. Can, can you believe Naomi saying these words? It is, it is good. Now, this is the goodness of God. God is doing us good. And then she goes on in verse uh, 22, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So keep close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley harvest, barley and, and wheat harvest. And, and what this indicates is God will provide for them roughly another seven weeks. One more remainder, and that's the very last phrase if you'd look at your Bible. And she lived with her mother-in-law. It's a subtle reminder From the narrator, Ruth still has a significant need. Ruth needs a husband. She's living with her mother-in-law and still needs a husband. I wonder, he says, if God will provide one. It is a tantalizing little hint. The narrator leaves us hanging until the next chapter. Chapter 3. So the third clue that, of course, God is the main character. And the third clue that where we see his invisible hand is the furious pursuit of God. So how, how, how do we see the invisible hand of God at work in Ruth chapter 2? And for that matter, how do we see the invisible hand of God at work in my life and in your life? By observing the clues in Ruth 2, but also observing these as they happen to us. One is the mysterious providence of God, that He's at work behind the scenes, arranging people and events. And then the gracious provision of God. Uh, These five things, he's extravagant with his grace, providing grace that we need for each encounter. And thirdly, we see the furious pursuit of God, his faithful love chasing us to do us good. Let me uh, close us in prayer as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper this morning. Oh, Heavenly Father, this is really, really wonderful truth that we've looked at today. And how what Boaz does in the life of Ruth points ahead to what you have promised for each and every believer here this morning. And Father, we need to be careful that we wallow in this glorious truth that we allow it to seep into our being that we trust you to do for us what you did for Ruth and Naomi Christ Jesus thank you for your unfailing love your constant supply of grace that goes above and beyond every need we encounter grow us in this grace this understanding Grow us in our trust for your provision, 
for your arrangement of things. Let us lean hard on the truth of Ruth 2, and may it strengthen our souls even today, Savior, we ask in your precious name. Amen.